Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, hello, pod people. G'day. It's Catherine Murphy. My guest this week is Fiona Simpson, who is the uh, president of the National Farmers Federation. I thought I'd bring Fiona in. She's a top chick, as regular listeners will know. And I wanted to talk to her about drought, uh, sort of little explosions and implosions in the National Party, climate change and all other uh, points in between. Anyway, listen up. Fiona, thank you for coming on the show. Always a pleasure. Now, because I don't follow drought as minutely as some other policy areas, I'm just going to give you the slightly distant perspective on what I've seen over the last couple of weeks, right, and yep. ask you maybe to help me Excellent. explain. Drought 101? Well, well, we'll get to drought 101, but this dynamic I'm going to talk to you about is the, the one between you and the government. Obviously, the NFF has said that the current settings are deficient and the government said, well, we can't adjust the current settings until we see the NFF's policy. It's It sort of seemed to me to be a very strange-looking dance, right, where I've thought several times, what on earth is that about? So what on earth was that about? So I think this government, like every other government since Federation probably, has dealt with drought in a very similar way, and that is that when we're not in drought, we don't think about it. When this one finishes, which we know it will, hopefully sooner rather than later, everybody will take a deep breath, they'll go, phew, and then we'll all forget about it until the next drought, unless we do something different. And you're forced to being responding as conditions worsen in the regions and as conditions worsen for landholders and small businesses and all those different people that are affected by drought, then you're, you're forced to be responding. And I think um, David Littleproud perhaps quite rightly calls it going up a set of steps. So what the government is doing at the moment is they are listening, doing some, you know, uh, seeing what sort of measures they've got in place, looking at the budget, looking at their cookie-cutter tin or looking at their money bank probably, mm. their piggy banks, because it's not, a, you know, we know that money doesn't grow on trees mm. and seeing what they can do as conditions worsen. So they're sort of being responsive in the middle of drought. Mm. Now what we would rather them do, and it's the same as every other government, we would rather take a proactive approach to drought just treat it as a regular part of a farm business cycle that when you're in drought, you're in it, but when you're not in it, you're sort of ready and getting prepared for the next one and you're looking at how you run your business and how you might innovate and how you might change what you're doing perhaps, how you all, all the different things you need to look at. But we believe those conversations need to happen all the time, mm. not just when you're in the middle of drought. The governments need to be addressing drought 
all the time, not just when you're in the middle of it, and that in actual fact, rather than the federal government, the current COAG agreement, for example, says it admits, it says that there is drought, that the federal government is responsible for these particular sorts of things, that the state government is responsible for these particular sorts of things, Mm -hmm. but then they go off and do their own things. They don't necessarily talk too much to see uh, who's doing what. They don't share data. There's not much data collected. There's no assessment really of the different measures that are put on the table. Um, There's been a heap of work done over time in places like WA with the drought pilot where they've gathered data and then it's rained so everybody's Mm. forgotten about it again. Mm. So, Mm. So what so, so the government has said, okay, so we don't have, we don't know what you're talking about, NFF. We want to see what you're putting on the table. We're happy to listen to industry. You're the ones that are dealing with it. So you give us your drought policy and then we'll see how we react. And that's the policy we presented to government last week. Okay. So if, for an organisation like the NFF, like a bit like, say, the Business Council on Climate Change, right? Yeah. You've got a, it's, it's a member organisation. Yep. There would be a span of views yep. within the organisation about huge. So, yeah, right. So it seems to me that putting together a drought policy for the organ for an organisation like the NFF must be excruciating. Am I right? It's it was a really difficult process, and I think kudos to the government for saying to us, "Look, let's see what you're going to put on the table." And I what you know, it was a difficult process. And, and why is it difficult? Is it because people don't agree, or it's it? difficult? Well, a couple of things. It's difficult because farmers, all farmers, are different. So we have, and in our membership, we have people who grow grain. We have people who have who have cattle, out li- extensive livestock, we call it, but we have cattle out on the farms. We have people who have intensive livestock. We have pig- pigs and chickens. We have um, oyster growers, for example, through one of our members. We have wool growers. We have small people. We have organics. We have all sorts of different people in our membership. And drought affects people completely differently, depending on your personal circumstances, depending on your business circumstances, depending on uh, your family circumstances, depending on where you live. Uh, All of those different things mean that drought can affect two people completely differently. And so when you're trying to set up a policy that requires agreement across the whole farming community, then it's a really, really difficult thing. And I think, you know, that's we were really pleased when we were able to reach agreement. And I think for us, it builds on what's already there in terms of the COAG agreement. So we've clearly highlighted there's blue yeah, bits and yellow bits. Yeah, so you've written it over the, the We've written the it COAG over policy. the text. So yeah. we've actually brought that in. Yeah. We've also brought in our old drought policy. But we really, really feel that we just cannot leave this drought without having a commitment to work differently in terms of the next drought. And if we were to put in some of those measures now, that actually, you know, none, nothing is set in stone in our drought policy in terms of responses. It's all meant to be a living document where we learn and we tweak and we bring in science, we bring in data, we rigorously assess. But more importantly, I think, Catherine, at the moment, each government is responsible for its own responses without talking to each other and without Mm. talking to industry. We envisage a panel that meets regularly that has not only the responsible people in governments at all levels, so federal government, uh, federal, state, local, but also agriculture and also community. So we've seen that it's not just farmers that are hurting in this drought. We've We've seen it's regional people, towns. People We've seen questions about, you yeah. know, fresh water for towns like Armadale and Tamworth and Dubbo. Yeah. 
we've seen small businesses in those towns really take a hit. So we do think we need to have this proactive response to drought. And if we were to initiate that panel, even now, and this is something we've had a discussion with, with government, if we were to, to initiate that panel, even now, we think that it would really help everybody to understand the needs and the responses that we need to make sure that we can support communities and support landholders as they're really buckling down and also looking with an eye to recovery, Mm. which is hopefully only around the corner, but you never know. No. Well, I wonder too with that, um, because you you just basically say be data-driven, be holistic, be be continuous in terms of, you know, the approach to policymaking. But I, I can't help but wonder though whether there's a massive elephant in the room and you do actually mention it in your drought policy I think it's the second sentence, which is climate change. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. So has part of the problem been, and maybe I'm injecting my own fetishes into this conversation, but has part of the problem been, no, I'll put this a different way, implicit in your document, your policy document, is the fact that droughts will be more frequent. That's just implicit, right? Yeah. Do you think that we've sort of gone about this policy making? I would say us about, but that's terribly rude. So let's not say (laughs) that. Let's say back to front in that the government has this strange sort of ambivalent position on climate change. Everybody knows climate change is why droughts are going to occur more frequently and why that is changing the viability of agriculture in the country. Yet... (sighs) Well, I'm not saying you guys don't talk about it because, like I said, it's the second sentence in your document, yeah. so you're not avoiding it. And, no. we've, and we've had this conversation yeah. about how the NFF has come to this yep. position before and it's, and it's really interesting, right? Yeah. But is that part of the problem? Because is it like, doesn't that sit behind water management, land management, adapt, adaptation on farm? Like, Well, there's a whole, I mean, I think... Some of these policies obviously can't exist in isolation of other policies. And so, you know, this week I've been talking about the fact that, you know, people, because people say, but you haven't been talking about uh, water infrastructure in your policy much. Well, obviously. It's kind of implicit in your policy. It's kind of implicit, (laughs) you know. And so, so it has to sit alongside a vision for regional development. It has to sit alongside a vision for sustainability. And, and obviously climate change, there's so much we don't know about climate change. So what I would say is that what we do know is that it has to be part of the conversation and the data that we're getting and the inputs that that we can that we can plug in the more information we've got about this the better we will be placed to be making decisions mm. so as a farmer that means for me just as I've had so over the 90 years I've been on my farm we've had four or five real cracker droughts and each time we've come out of it we've made uh, or, or in the middle of it we've made some some really big business decisions about the way we do business to change the way um, we do business to make yeah. sure that we can be more sustainable so I'd say that farmers sort of are well, they, plugging yes. that information in any way. No, no, absolutely. I'm mm. not, I'm not, oh yeah, my yeah. God, like yeah, God yeah. forbid. I'm not, yeah. I'm not suggesting that farmers are just, you know, twiddling their thumbs no, know, no, and, no. Not, and not, not adapting to conditions. Obviously farmers are adapting to conditions. I'm just, I'm just talking about from a policymaking framework. Yeah. There's sort of, um, proce- call it process of government stuff yeah. that's absent, which yeah. you've addressed, but there's also, you know, this serious conversation we need to have as a, as a country about Oh, yeah. And the I future. Think people, and I think people, I suppose farmers, you know, because we live with it every day and we always have in terms of a, a, in terms of a changing climate, then I think we just always really 
we're a bit surprised that people get, you know, head up about it. Really head up about, mm. you know, what they would regard sometimes as just one issue, but it's an overarching yeah, issue well, that's, that's obviously changing the whole thing and s- needs to have an influence on. So it's a bit like the UN sustainability goals, don't you think, or sustainable development goals? Mm. I think, you know, I have the view that those sorts of things should underpin everything you do, yes. you know, and that they should be run through this framework. Any policy that government comes up with or that we, you know, that those those sorts of goals should influence everything yes. that we do. I think we're and, saying the same thing, And I think it's we? the same thing. <laughs> I think that's what you're saying and that's, I think we agree. Yes. So, yes, it's implicit, but we do need to have that conversation off, you know, generally in the community, which yeah. I think we're having. I really do think we're having. When you look at the responses of, of business and, and the farming community and everybody, I think that conversation's being being had. And we certainly, you know, the, the drought policy is just but one thing that directly affects us, but obviously it has to be had in that context. Was that part of the difficulties, climate, and I don't want to be obsessive about it, we'll yeah. get on to other things in a minute, yeah. was, was uh, the foreground of climate one of the internal difficulties in trying no, to put this together. No, not, not at time. all. Not at all. It's interesting. Um, so, no, no, not at all. Really, the difficulties in getting agreement is around how much assistance, how much, so how much focus do you put on in drought and how much focus do you put on out of drought and how how do you actually start talking about, you know, is it possible to prepare, for example, for a drought as severe as this? So, you know, if you're really resilient and you're preparing everything, you know, some people, um, and depending on their business models, as I say, and depending on their family circumstances, some people, you know, think that it's really difficult and you'll never be able to prepare for a drought as severe as this. Mm, right. So it's, it's mm. actually building, it was building some of those things in and having discussions about that that was more difficult, about where we placed the emphasis and what we saw. And that's why we haven't locked in any of the measures, to be honest, because we do think it's going to depend a little bit about how long we've got to prepare, you know, how how much time we've got before, because the, the millennial drought's hot on, you know, we're just now hot on the heels of the millennial well, drought. Exactly. So we've had no, no time at all. Well, the, <laughs> the millennial drought, so-called, is now going, well, looks could be the 10-year drought or yeah. the five-year drought or whatever yeah. else, right? Yeah. So. so I think the, the, no, it's more the fact that it's so difficult drought. For some, so for some people, say if they live in Western New South Wales or Queensland, you know, in, when they're budgeting for their farm incomes and things, they might only count, you know, one crop in every three or something like that. Yeah. So over in the Hunter Valley, so so they could go two years maybe or three years and it's it's okay, but it's starting to bite. So somewhere like the Hunter Valley in New South Wales or where I live, we have, you know, two crops a year. So mm. when you start, miss one crop, and if you miss two crops, and if you miss three in a row, it's actually diabolical. So, yeah. you know, some people, it just depends on those sorts of cycles and the measures that people think. So that's why it was hard to to reach agreement. And also because, you know, if you think of a livestock producer, so, you know, they've been keen to look at fodder, for example. But for croppers, that's actually, you know, not providing any support. And so if the government spends millions and millions of dollars on providing support for livestock producers, then the cropping people are quite rightfully saying, well, what about us? What are you going to do for us? And our needs will be when it rains again, perhaps, to plant a crop. So, you know, there's all these interesting, difficult discussions, but I'm really proud that we've been able to reach agreement Mm -hmm. and that we've been able to put to government the policy that they asked for. No other government has done it. So we're really that they've, you know, indicated that they're really happy to look at it and con- make, you know, consider some of the things in it. And I think if we could actually have this collaborative effort, and if it kicked off now, then I think we'd be making much better decisions in this drought, mm. uh, but also in the lead up to the next. Yeah. What about uh, the Nats? <laughs> 
sorry, that's that's almost too big a subject, really. You say the nationals, but there is this. Um, well, how do you describe it? This sort of dissatisfaction around the place internally, which is sort of playing out in in various ways, right? I mean, you won't want to get into that, I know, but is that for farmers at this point in time a good thing or a bad thing? I think farmers just want the the politicians to get on with what they're doing and to concentrate on their jobs. And that's overwhelmingly what we think David Littleproud is doing and Bridget McKenzie is doing. They're both doing an excellent job. And at the moment, they're both, you know, incredibly committed. And they've been very open to discussions with us about what we're finding. They have an open door policy. Uh, We talk to them, I talk to both of them probably most days. And I think farmers overwhelmingly, like most of the community, they they want the politics out of it. They just want people to be doing their jobs, to be concentrating on doing their jobs. We've just had a federal election. Everybody should know their jobs. Mm. And they people uh, really have very little patience <laughs> patience <laughs> with party leaks or yeah. what goes on in yeah. those closed door rooms. They just think that really, can we please just get just on get with on it with and it. support the leaders they've chosen and, and let them lead? But is money, is uh, because money, right, is sort of like the, now Barnaby Joyce is saying, oh, well, we need another 1.3 billion, you know, fund with the states or whatever, is is money the answer? No, quite often it's not the answer at the moment. And it depends what you're talking about. If you're talking about water infrastructure or planting massive dams or doing some studies around those sorts of things, well, yeah, you're going to need some dough. But... I actually think it's the this is, and this is what's missing in the drought piece at the moment. It's it's not so it's about the impact that the money has, and it's about being aware that you're actually trying to serve this really really diverse population and um, groups in terms of a drought. So you're trying to to serve people who have bigger farms, perhaps smaller farms. You're trying to um, and landholders, business people, regional communities, people who have no water. All of those all of these different people, and for some for some of these people, not very much money makes a huge huge, huge impact. Mm. And if you talk to people like the CWA, for example, who help people with school fees and personal business, you know, personal expenses, not business expenses, family expenses, people are ever so grateful for that money because it just enables it to go a little bit further. But then you have other people who are looking at putting off employees, which of course is awful in regional communities. You don't want to be putting off employees. So it's a really fraught space. But I think if we can actually have this collaborative group that gets together and actually shares data, shares what they're going to be doing, looks at the looks really at planning and the responses. You can't just focus on more dollars is not always the answer. And it's taxpayers' money. I mean, I think the planning side of it, like regional development side, if we are planning for, which I believe in, as you know, regional towns to grow and prosper in regional communities and regional hubs, then they have to have fresh water somehow. Mm. So it certainly helps. (laughs) Otherwise, you're going to have millions more people over here on the coast, which is not going to help either. So, you know, that is planning and that is about... So I think that goes hand in hand with any of that stuff. But everything has to be obviously tested. Everything must have a good business case. And we need to do all the appropriate work on that to make sure that those sorts of things are the the answers. Rather than driving a ute. Through at high speed, throwing yeah. cash out. Yeah, I mean, the to be honest, when I um when I know a New South New South Wales resident, you know that they've spent billions of dollars literally on building the stadiums in Sydney. Well, I do think I look longingly at those figures and think, okay, so some of that money would really, I'd really love that money in mm. rural and regional um, New South Wales. Mm. But it's not about. I don't think you can put a figure on it. I think what you need to do is look at what the needs are, what the impacts are that you want to have, what the outcomes are, and then you cost all those things, and then you you go from there. You go from there. Mm. You guys raise five. 
this yeah. week. Uh, and you will have, I'm sure, been sli- slightly disappointed that that's been the focus of your... Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, great I, measures in there yeah. other than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I understand <laughs> that. Uh, and, you know, I have only raised at the end of this conversation because I saw once the stories were noticed that way, I had a sense that you might be a little, a little disappointed. But still, you did raise it. It's interesting. Yeah. Well, so talk me through it. So we raised it because what people need in a drought is hope. And uh, we know that only a small percentage of the farming population actually access most of the government support. Um, So it's relatively under 10% are on FHA, which is the government safety net. And we also know that there's a, you know, a booming property market at the moment. But there are people who live in, in some locations that feel that they perhaps have no hope and can't sell their farm, can't move until they sell their farm. They could be stuck in this cycle where they can't do anything, they're feeling hopeless. So because we're aimed and our suggestions to government for this drought, whether it's you know some payroll relief, whether it's extra money for kids to go to school, whether it's interest-free periods with the government loans, all those different things are all aimed at different sectors of the farming community. Mm. And if if an exit package, if somebody getting some money to feel like they've got options and hope actually opens a door for them, then I reckon it's worth it mm-hmm. because um, hope is the hardest thing in a drought. You never know when it's really going to start and you never know when it's going to finish. And the last thing we want people to feel like is it's hopeless. And so, it, you know, for most people, they've just bunkered down. They're, you know, they, they won't would, be interested. They, they're people. not going to be interested. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, gonna, they're making the hard decisions as they go along and drought is all about hard decisions, let me tell you. But for some people, and on social media yesterday, once the hubbub died down a bit, it was really interesting to see some of the stories because uh, there are people out there who they, they may not have any livestock left, they may not have any water on their farms, they don't know what their kids are going to be doing there. They're feeling hopeless. Mm. And so we've said to government, and this is just a suggestion, no idea whether the government's going to do it or whether it's not. Mm. It's not saying, you know, all it's saying is it's another tool in the box that might suit some people and if it does provide hope for some people and support for some people in making that really hard decision, then we think it's worth it. Yeah, well, it's well, it's it's a conversation we have to have. I don't think it's yeah. a conversation that can be yeah. avoided. No. But for someone in the city who mm. just superficially reads the top line of the story, yeah. NFF says, you yeah. know, pay people 150k to yeah to get out to get out right. Yeah, and the poor old person sitting in traffic in Sydney yeah. says, well, no one will pay me 150k yeah. to get out. So what, what's the rationale for it? What's the justification? Um, the rationale is, is that these people are really suffering at the moment. Some people, and it's not very many, it's a very, very, very small percentage of people, you know, that really, it, it, we do think people in the city understand the anguish sometimes of living in the bush. And people in the city, let's face it, do get subsidised for pretty much everything they do, you know, the, oh, whether it's workers, public transport, whatever it is. Workers get redundancy payments. Workers too. get redundancy payments and um, these people have been sitting on um, farms that probably may, may may not be worth anything so if it was worth something they'd be selling it and get wanting to get off yeah. they may feel like they've got no options and so we think that it, it's instead of keeping them on FHA indefinitely we never know when the when the drought is going to end mm. we think that it's not a bad suggestion which is what came from our members um, not a bad suggestion to put to say to these people look this is a package we can help you move we can help you you know organize things we can get you some business training whatever it takes yeah. and we've been not been prescriptive in the training Howard did have a, a, a package that yes. which is why it was quoted like that before um, with 150,000 we haven't been prescriptive maybe it's some um, you know some more training maybe it's whatever it takes but just if there are people out there 
We don't want people to feel like there's no hope. There's not very many of them, I don't think. I think most people are bunkering down. But it's just in terms of a varied toolkit full of a suite of measures that can help people at all different cycles of the drought and business cycles and family cycles and all those things, just could be something that people, some people might latch on to. So, and that's reading some of the stories on social media last night. There are people out there who are going, well, wait a minute, in actual fact, this, if it happens, this would be very helpful. This would be to really me. helpful well, for me. Not at all surprised. God, mm. I mean, I was sort of, I was a bit surprised by the controversy actually but anyway there you go well I think people were saying get off you know the way media sorry yes no, the greatest no, respect to no, media no, no, but no, the no. way it was spun yes. was um, a bit brutal a, a bit brutal and people were uh, and I, you know all these people which does annoy me I have to say Catherine all these commentators people which is their job um, who are not farmers who don't know much about drought often and who do you know they do talk but they also talk to people who are in drought all the day and that's that's a good thing too mm. because people do need to have somebody to talk to and if they're desperate and feeling at the end of their, I'd rather they rang a helpline probably um, um, or (laughs) somebody that could actually help them um, than a commentator. But still, that's fine too. And it is really, we, you know, and I appreciate the opportunity to try and explain some of these things because they're incredibly complex and there is just no, like a lot of the things I seem to talk to you about, there is just no easy answer. There is no silver bullet. And, well, this is why uh, we like these conversations because <laughs> we, this is why you and I enjoy our conversations. So it's it's all good. No, I get it. And, and this is an opportunity for you to explain but it. But I think, at, can at, I just, yeah. one more thing though. So, because yeah. so, what was released yesterday, I think people got a bit confused. So the, the drought policy, which was released, is the future thing. So we all talk together and none of the, me- the measures are locked in. It's all about assessment, review. Did they work? Did they not? What are we going to put in? It's about working in, in drought, out of drought, the whole thing. And then the six things that we suggested to go government that could help in this drought, that our members thought could help in this drought, uh, things like, as I say, payroll relief for people that are employing people that might be looking at putting them off, extra money for kids schooling, uh, no interest for government loans, the RIC loans for a period of time, a federal national pig cull, uh, a federal mm. pig cull, mm. and oh, a couple of other things I can't remember at the mm. top of my head, but there's yeah, six things, yeah, and the extra package. So and, they were the things that perhaps in this, things. but they're not envisaged in the next, in our future drought policy. Yes. They're just for this drought. For this because we haven't had a plan. Yeah, well, that was clear to me. But mm. anyway, if that, it's good, though, to lay it out if it wasn't clear to people yeah. listening. There was yeah. there were short-term measures and there were longer-term measures. We hope that people, we hope that all our farming community are sustainable and we hope that, you know, they don't need to, you know, be accessing any of these sorts of packages. And we hope that, you know, by focusing on resilience and sustainability and diverse income streams and, you know, farm management practices and all, all these different things and using data to help inform our decisions, we hope that we are, um, you know, strengthening our really sustainable farming community. Mm. But if we're really true and honest, you know, some people at the moment are really hurting and that's really, we, na- we need to be conscious of that. Yeah, yeah, well. yeah, sure. One question because I know you've got yep. to go. One last one. Are there opportunities, do you think, because we talk about, about you know, carbon farming and yep. various things, right? Yep. But are there more opportunities maybe for farmers, uh, you know, is this something government should think about, right? Like perhaps there are opportunities for farmers during drought to, I don't know, protect a section of really important yep. vegetation on their land or something like that. So right? that's or, part of the discussion we're having at the moment. There's a pilot that's been proposed, the biodiversity pilot. I think it's a $30 million pilot. And we're having some really good conversations with government about this because I think that the premise of the conversation, though, is that we have to start looking at farmers as being perhaps part of the solution. And we don't want, you know, and, and admitting that some of the measures that we've had before have really looked at farming as bad. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, the only answer is to lock up large tracts of land and let them 
go un- unmanaged mm. pretty much. Mm. Um, so I think if we start looking at at the fact that we manage nearly 60% of our landscape and that and we take it on the premise that, that farmers like sustainable landscapes because they know that that produces more better food and better fibre, which is what we do, and we love living in the land, so we like a nice sustainable landscape around us, then I think there's lots of options that are open for really good outcomes in terms of whether you're talking carbon, whether you're talking, you know, sustainable farming systems or or species, biodiversity, all that stuff, which Mm. a lot of farmers are doing anyway for no money. Like if you look at, for example, how many trees get planted Mm. every year Mm. and, you know, we all talk about how many get knocked down. But in actual fact, if you focus on how many are planted (laughs) and riparian zones and all that stuff that Landcare does that NFF was instrumental in starting back in 79, and you start looking at maybe that's something that if that's a community expectation now, we could be paying farmers Mm, for. mm. So I think it's part of looking at, and certainly our 2030 report, envisages diverse income streams, it envisages understanding what the community's expectations are, making sure we can step up, but also I think recognising that we need to be, sometimes if we're performing a a service on our farm for the community, maybe that's got a value, a a monetary value attached Mm -hmm. to it. And then making sure then that we have the methodologies that allow individual farmers to access those sorts of income streams. And that's been one of the problems in the past. It's it's really gone on aggregation mm. and people have sort of bought up packages of land and then thrown them into schemes. But in actual fact, really, I think you want the landscape managed for feral animals and weeds and pests yeah. and things. You yeah. want people in the in the regions. You don't want to be taking farmers off the land. You want to keep them on the land, but you want to make sure that they're sustainable. And part of that is, you know, can we look at the funding some of those things? Mm. But also I think part of that is always, of course, and there's, you know, it's the recognition of how, you know, competition for our products and prices and, you know, Know, all those different things. It's a really interesting conversation. Well, this is, yeah, I'm quite sort of fascinated by it, mm. but do you think it would, because obviously there's been some problem with land clearing in New South Wales and other places. Like I've read recently some hair-raising stories about what's going on and farmers are, I mean, I understand why farmers would feel as though environmental regulations are an impost on their business, but, you know, it's for, there are, those regulations exist for a reason. So, I mean, I think it's changing the way we look at it. And I think we've seen the way we've turned around, for example, accidents on farms and we've still got a long way to go. But if you start turning them into, if you start treating it in a different way and looking at it an opportunity and rather than, you know, telling farmers what to do and regulating them in that space, rather than actually having a conversation with them about things that they might be doing anyway and how they can increase that and diversify their landscape and, and perhaps then be, you know, rewarded for that. So that. it's the carrot instead of the stick approach yeah. in some ways. Yeah. But it is, I have to say, you know, what a lot of farmers are doing anyway. But it, it, I think it's having that conversation and instead of thinking, you know, if farmers are bad, we must regulate them heavily and punish them for this. I mean, obviously there has to be rules in place and we all want to apply, comply with those rules. But sometimes, you know, the rules don't make sense either because they're just one rule for everybody. And you, in, whether you're in a coastal landscape, whether you're in a far western landscape, whether you're in a grasslands or a, a floodplain, you know, some of those rules when you start drilling down into them are really, you know, they just don't make sense in different landscapes Mm. and you need to have fit for purpose sort of legislation. And farmers are sort of practical people. So they go, wait a minute, how can I even comply with this? Now, we don't have any tolerance for people who break the law, but we want to make sure also that we've got frameworks that we can add and, you know, really contribute to rather than look at it as as penalising and restrictive. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's... let's, That's uh, probably a conversation for another day. Well, no, that's another... The pilot is really... Exciting, yeah, well, there's another. You. There is a whole conversation in that. We yeah, should, we'll, there is. we'll have that at. We will have that at the appropriate time. Yeah, anyway, it's really and it's developing. And so maybe when this pilot gets up, we do think it's a, it's a biodiversity pilot.
I, mm. I actually think it's going to have some really interesting things come out of it and we're really looking forward to working yeah. in that in a different paradigm. Again, always got to look, how can we do things differently? We can't go backwards, we need to go forwards. Let's, how can we do things differently? How can we do things better? Mm-hmm. Um, we're always up for that conversation. Yeah, 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 I know you are. All right, thanks for joining me, appreciate it. Thanks. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, Catherine. Thank you so very much for listening. We really do appreciate it. As always, thank you to Miles Martignoni, executive producer extraordinaire, and to Hannah Izzard and the production team in Sydney. Bless your cotton socks. We'll be back again next week. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today... We're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.